What's the game-changing realization that helped you build a high-performing team? That question is at the center of every episode of the HR Impact Show. Every HR professional wants to build a team that has empowered managers, engaged employees, and an organization that's striving to become elite. The challenge is that you're often told to do more with less. We're gonna fix that. Every week, we will feature executive and senior HR leaders from across the country, and they will share with us their actionable insights and best practices that can help empower you to create an engaged elite workforce. Here's the show. Thanks for joining us today on the HR Impact Show. This is your friendly neighborhood talent strategy near Dr. Jim. There is no shortcut to building extreme trust, and it requires extreme discipline from leaders. In fact, this requires leaders to be silent more often than not in having a strategic bias for action. Those were the key learnings that helped Rusty Atkinson build high-performing teams throughout his career, and he's joining us today. He's an experienced CIO and SaaS business leader with over 20 years of experience leading technical teams. He's had a strong history of delivering and supporting SaaS offerings. He's been involved in numerous digital transformations. He's got a foot in both infra infrastructure and operations. He's enabled a lot of development teams. He removes friction. One of the more important and probably underrated things about Rusty's background is that he is an active DEIB advocate and sponsor. He's got deep technology executive experience with experience in the healthcare security and software sectors. Rusty Atkinson, VP of Tech at Clearway Health. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Dr. Jim. I'm happy to be here. This isn't our first rodeo. You and I have been together on a show before, so I'm, I'm pumped to revisit some of the conversations that we've had previously. I think before we dive into the nuts and bolts of building high-performance teams, I'd like you to share with the audience a little bit more detail and context about your background and experience, and then we'll dive right into the discussion after that. Happy to. You said it in the intro. I've been a geek leading teams of geeks for my entire career. And that spans, let's say, over a couple of decades. And, uh, and I've done that in just so many different verticals, financial services and high tech and just security, uh, InfoSec, and most recently in healthcare. And it was my first healthcare role was CIO at Signify Health. And I was there until CVS acquired Signify Health back, back last year. And after leaving Signify, I I uh, joined Clearway Health. When I got first got into healthcare and first got exposed to the missions of healthcare, they're just, they're so compelling. But not to say that there aren't compelling missions, that companies in other verticals don't have compelling missions. But when your work you do, you can see the work impact lives of patients. It's, it's just hard to compare. And when you, you talk about motivating teams and building high-performance teams, a lot of times it ties into the mission that the company is in and can the individual see themselves in that company mission. And when that company mission is actually saving lives and helping lives be more, it's, that's what my, my, my career has come to is this finding my place inside of the healthcare uh, vertical. It's interesting that you mention the connection to the mission as being a big factor in the shelf life of a typical employee. I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but I want to wind this back a little bit to your most recent previous role. And if I heard you correctly, you were involved in an acquisition. I I'm not sure if that was your first experience being acquired or not, but what were the, some of the key lessons that you learned in that acquisition process that you think 
will serve you well going forward. I was at Signify when CVS acquired. It wasn't my first acquisition. I've been involved in, gosh, I don't even know if I could number the acquisitions, either as the acquirer or the acquired. And those are two different experiences. When you are on the team that gets acquired, which we were at Signify, there's a concern, there's a fear. There's It's unspoken lots of times, but folks are wondering, what's this mean to me? What happens when when the big company takes over? Well, that's fear. It, it, I'm telling you it exists. Whether or not you feel it personally as a member of the team, it happens on your, somebody in your team, some bodies in your team feel that fear and uncertainty and doubt of what's going to happen as the acquirer that's less right that's less that's less prevalent when you are part of the big company acquiring the small i think that slide that fear and uncertainty doubt doesn't permeate as, as badly but then you're in the position of your now you're taking responsibility for the lives of the employees that you're acquiring and you got to realize that whether or not they state it when they're in their first meetings with you they're wondering about you. They're wondering about this new company that just moved over and, oh my gosh, they're going to fire us all. Is this the end? Are they coming here to save money by getting rid of my salary? Whether or not they articulate those concerns to you, you can bet that they're there. And while I knew that and have known that being at Signify as the acquired, those, th those were real. It's conversations that you have to have with the team. Those concerns, that fear doesn't go away by not talking about it. So that's a good point that you bring up that the fear exists and it sounds like one of the approaches that you use is to confront it head on and admit that it's there as a way to just move forward so i think i think when we're talking about being like all of these leadership buzzwords got to be tra transparent you got to be vulnerable you got to be authentic that's one of those scenarios when you're either being acquired or part of the acquiring leadership team it's critical for you to be all of those things and show up in a way that best supports the existing overall team as best you can. Thanks for that that bit of insight. When I opened the show, I mentioned that there's no shortcut to building extreme trust, and it also requires discipline from leaders. When you're talking about no shortcuts and extreme discipline, that's at odds with a startup environment. How do you connect those two things and tie it to the game-changing realization that helped you build these high-performing teams. I would my, respectfully disagree. I don't think it's at odds with the startup culture, if you will, or the startup uh, that was required in the startup. What I mean by that there's no shortcoming and that it takes discipline, it's that building trust, you, there's, you can only build trust one way, and that's through actions that agree with the things you say. And if I'm doing those things, first of all, I have the foundation has to be that I've got the best interests of the company and the employees at heart, and that I promise you to act in a trustworthy manner, and I promise you that I'm going to be honest with you. And, I, and if I'm making those commitments and I'm backing them up with actions, there's no shortcut to that. The actions you take, you can't take one action and pretend you didn't, right? That's how you build extreme trust is by doing the thing saying the things you're going to do and then doing those things. And then by the way, reminding people, I told you I was going to help you out. I told you I was going to take care of you. That's how you build extreme trust is by proving it, right? That's the culture of a startup can be found, have a foundation in that and those trustworthy actions until a leader does something that they promised not to do or does something that's not in agreement with the things that they said they would do or the, the culture or the focus of the company. You don't get to make those mistakes. You don't get to make the mistakes of intentionally defying the thing that you said was important. And when you do, I guarantee you, it will be seen. It will not happen at art. It will be seen and you'll get the decreased trust 
because of it. That's what I mean by there's no shortcut. I'm going to play a little devil's advocate here. All right. I appreciate the context that you laid out here. When I think of a startup environment, it's often run really fast, get stuff done. And when I take the extreme trust concept, extreme discipline from leaders, it automatically takes me into a more methodical approach more process oriented. You have to like create the space and leave the foundation for building trust at that individual level. And that takes time. How do you reconcile both the pace of a startup environment with, especially in a technical environment where you have so many things that are deliverables and still create enough space for those conversations and those demonstrations of values and principles that help you build trust. You can't sacrifice the employee engagement because we're in a startup. A startup is still formed of people and the people interact with one another and the engagements that you have with the people are still, they're foundational. Sure, we have tight timelines and sure we have to be dynamic and we have to be be agile, nimble when we have requirements that might change from one day to the next. Absolutely. But none of those things have to do with the relationship. I make time for one-on-ones with my extended team. I make a lot of time for one-on-ones with my direct team. Having those conversations, having, to your point earlier, frank conversations with the folks and letting them understand how, what's in my priorities? What's motivating me? What are the things that I see as, as my priorities, the unchallengeable imperatives, if you will, and then act in accordance with that, right? What I won't do is try to convince somebody at a startup that we have a 12-month plan and these are the seven milestones over 12 months we have to meet. That's a pipe dream, but 12 months in a startup. No, we, I can tell you what the next month, two months are going to look like with some clarity. But if you don't try to pretend like you've got the plan all locked down on the first day, then you give yourself some room for that latitude, for that being nimble and changing direction. I still maintain that the fast-paced or the nimble way that you have to move inside of a startup does not preclude one from operating in a disciplined way and, and building that extreme trust with the employees. You, to, you do that by engaging with the employees and being honest with the employees and being as transparent as you can be with the employees. That's how you build those things. I think there's a, there's a lot in what you said that I think is actionable, but there's one element that I want to pull on, and that's your comment about you still do your one-on-ones with your downline. You still do your one-on-ones with your immediate direct reports. Everybody knows that one-on-ones are like taking your vitamins. You have to do it. And yet there are so many people that put that as a lower priority in the day-to-day than they should. So my question to you is, given that a lot of managers push that down on the priority list, how do you instill the discipline to prioritize that much higher on the table than what is what's expected. I telegraphed my answer back maybe 10, 15 minutes ago when I said that you make public promises and they keep them. In my first days when I'm talking to an employee, whether it's the employees that were here when I got here and employees that I added since I've been here, I let them know early on that they can expect to have a one-on-one with me on a basis of the week or every other week or monthly, depending on what their level of the organization, so that they're never longer than that away from having my undivided attention. And I make that commitment to them. I already said that if you make a commitment and then you don't follow it, that's the best way to destroy trust. I know that I can't do my job unless my team trusts me. I'd set myself up. I make that claim and then I must dedicate time to it because if I don't, then I lose trust. And if I lose trust, I lose my team. But then the second part of that is how do you make sure that you stay on top of it? Look, if, if a one-on-one becomes a status report, becomes a readout of the initiatives that you're supposed to finish and did you do it? Did you not do it? Then yeah, it's going to get 
it's going to get old. It's going to get crusty and you're not going to want to do it. But if your one-on-one becomes about the employee, becomes about the employee's aspirations, dreams, hopes, ask the employee, what's the end of their career? This is one of my favorite questions to really spice up a one-on-one. I asked Sally, I didn't have anybody named Sally on my team, but I asked, Sally, have you ever sat down and, and thought about what the end of your career looks like? What's the last thing you're doing before you retire? The last job you're in? Because if you can articulate that, even if it takes you, maybe it takes you a month, maybe two or three times from now when we talk, you can give me the answer to this. But think about what the end of your career looks like. What are you doing when you have accomplished your career? Because if you can articulate that, it probably is a better measure of the things that you want to work to than, hey, tell me about the next job you want. The next job you want is so dependent upon opportunity as to sometimes be out of your control, whether or not you're going to get it. But if you can tell me what, the end of your career looks like when you've had a career that sort of models your dream, then I can, we can start working toward that. We can start working on that uh, actions that get you closer to that. Even if the opportunity doesn't pop up next year, next month, next three years. And you, this thing happens when you have that conversation. I've, I've seen just people light up in those conversations. Like I've never had this conversation. Before. Wow. It's been a great conversation so far. Make sure you join the HR impact community where we gather a community of HR leaders, just like you. This is a space where top people leaders share actionable insights and practical playbooks. Sign up today as a member for the community. Get updates on the latest HR resources and exclusive event invites. You can join the community at www.engagerocket.co slash HR Impact. And now back to the show. We're taking the HR Impact Show on the road. As a loyal listener to the HR Impact Show, we'd like to invite you to join us live at the 2024 Transform Conference at the Wynn Resort in Las Vegas from March 11th through the 13th. Transform brings together people-driven leaders, investors, and innovators across industries and backgrounds with a shared passion for people innovation and transforming the world of work. The 2024 Transform Conference is gonna be the best yet. Here's what you can expect. Innovative showcases, probing conversations, hands-on learning experiences, 300-plus speakers, and more. Join us and let's shape the future world of work together. It's a fantastic question, and me being a bit more morbid than you, I would often, in probably an early-stage meeting with a new employee, I would take them through an exercise and have them write their eulogy. What do you want to be remembered for when you're gone? And I tell them, obviously, why are we doing this is I want to get an understanding of what your personal professional vision is. And it's open forum for you to do it. And you'll have to go after that a couple of times to get it because a lot of people look at you sideways, but it's a great exercise. So I appreciate you sharing that with me. One of the things that I'm wondering about is when you're laying the foundation for this sort of high trust, high discipline, high communication environment. What are the things that leaders should be on alert for that can set this exercise back or not get you the results that you want? Yeah, you've got to guard against making promises that are not objectively in your control. One of the sins that I've seen managers commit over and over again is is make promises to folks in their organization that, yes, I know you want to raise, I know you want a promotion, I'm going to get it. Are you objectively in control of that? If you're not, a, if you're not running the finance department, if you don't have that kind of latitude, then making that promise, oh, boy, that's a trap. You just laid yourself a trap. So I would say, be careful making promises where you don't control it completely. And that, and by the way, that means one-on-ones also, when you commit to having a one-on-one with somebody, it's objectively in your control, right? But 
only if you'll take control of your schedule. So that would be one thing. Another thing that I would say you have to be cautioned against is just because I outreach to everybody in my organization and I let them know that I'm here to help remove obstacles and friction from them, to help unencumber them so they can do their jobs bigger, stronger, faster. When I say that to an individual, some number of those individuals are going to be low performers who are not ready, willing, or able, whichever the case may be, to commit to the, the requirements of the role that they're in. It doesn't change that I'm committed to helping you be as big, strong, fast, and unencumber you as best I can, but you still have a responsibility to do perform. And, and those are not just incongruent with one another. I'm going to do my best to equip you and to unencumber you. Your part is to do your best to crush the job you've been given. If you fail to see that, that dichotomy, that, that two parts of the same, then I think of a, a leader can be trapped into saying, but if I grade their performance, if I manage their performance, then will they trust me? And I would argue if you don't manage their performance, the organization cannot trust you. But that's a trap that I've seen, especially maybe earlier career, less experienced managers get into is that how can I build trust with them? How will they trust me if I'm telling them that they're doing a poor job? They can't unless you have an honest conversation with them about the performance. There's an interesting aspect of what, what you're saying that I want to tie together. When we're thinking about that leader-follower relationship, there's an element of it where the leader's role is to listen, and there's another element where the leader's role is to take action. Especially in early-stage leaders, it's hard to figure out which option, yeah. which path you should take. What's the advice that you have for those early leaders that are trying to figure out, okay, I'm hearing what my team is telling me. Which path do I take? Do I continue listening? Do I take action? What's my course? How have you navigated that, those sort of questions? It's tough. It's tough to you that the early career manager has lots of times spent more of their, their earning life doing rather than leading, right? And so knowing when to give, you know, give space and give time and give, you know, training and support and when to force direction, that's a tough one. I don't think there's a magic easy button for it. It has to be governed by the whole calculus, right? How much time do you have for this task? How complex is the task? How much experience does the individual have with the task? How much experience do you have with the task? It's a, like I said, it's a calculus. And I wish I had an easy answer for you, but it's about being honest with yourself and with the individuals about that calculus, about those elements and those variables and acknowledging that as every day and every hour goes by, the deadline gets closer and that should be guiding our actions. Yeah. One of the things that, uh, that I found useful when I was in those moments was to acknowledge what was being said and that admit, hey, I'm not exactly sure how to go forward with this. So let me get some additional input. And I would escalate it upstairs anonymously and try to collaborate on a solution because you need to get a different set of eyes. And I think, uh, especially in that use case that you mentioned, most of those early career managers are people that could push, pull, and drag them, drag things across the finish line as individual contributors. And as first-time leaders, they probably have the same bit of that instinct in them so the worst thing that you can do is try to do that. What you should do is take a beat and probably get other people involved in the coaching process for yourself so that you're making the right decision instead of taking action and doing the work for somebody else. You're right. That's having, being a doer, being especially a high performing doer, 
by the way, those are people who typically get promoted, not always, but typically get promoted. There's just this bias toward action for them too. And their bias toward action could take them, move, let me do that for you. And it has to be an early discipline and it's incumbent upon the leader, senior to that, that immature leader or that early career leader to remind them, look, take a beat, take a beat, find out, don't impose your will on the, the person who's doing the task, find out how you can help them do the task. Don't take it from them. Find out how you can help them do it better, stronger, faster. I'm glad that you mentioned find out from them what they need. As simple as if we're talking about building an extreme trust environment and a high communication environment, it's certainly inbounds to ask the question, what do you need me to do? Is this something where you just need to vet and have me listen? Or is this something that you need me to take action in some way? And if so, what sort of action do you want me to take? I think being that direct is, is probably useful. Rushi, great conversation. So far, we've mapped out sort of what you should be doing and why you should be doing it from a, a leadership principles perspective. And especially when we're looking at building these high trust organizations, that's all important to know. Now, I'd like you to map out how do you even get started with this if you're a new leader or looking for that cultural transformation that you want to initiate? Where do you start? How do you actually get this in motion? I'm embarrassed. And the first steps are simple and maybe obvious to me. Let's say you got a team of five, six folks and you want, you, I mean, you really want this high trust and you know that it's going to, it's going to take time to build. I think the first conversation you have to have is a real heart to heart. Everybody, everybody in the group get together. Let's talk. What kind of team do we want to be? It's inconceivable to me that somebody would come up and say, I want an untrustworthy organization. Build that conversation. Set the environment up so that you're talking to the people and you're finding out what's important to them. Now, you're, you're going to need to map this to your organization, your, your parent organization and the company to make sure that you're not setting up a, a discussion or a, a culture for your team that's not as incongruent with the rest of the company. But having that first conversation and, and pulling from your team members the things that are important to them, having, having a discourse about what actions can we not allow in our organization? What kind of actions will cause us to say stop? What kind of actions should we, that we're doing now, should we continue? What kind of things that we're doing now or that we're not doing now that we should be starting? Having that start, stop, continue conversation as a group where all voices are heard one of the things that I've talked about before is that we'll get a lot of mileage if we won't predetermine where good ideas come from. And so if you believe that, if you believe that good ideas can come from any organization, regardless of what the person uh, looks like or their background, then, then you should invite their voice. So the first step is that. And an output of that, an outcome of that should be setting up some sort of defining actions for your team. For instance, I think frequent small feedback is better than quarterly business reviews. Too much happens in a quarter, even monthly reviews. Too much happens in a month. I want every single day to know what you did yesterday, what you're hoping to do today, and what's blocking you. That's an agile principle, a stand-up principle, but it doesn't have to be about development. It can just be a literally two-minute check-in in the morning. All of us, most of us use some kind of instant messenger at work, whether it be Teams or Slack. As easy as putting up a channel, tell me what you did yesterday, tell me what you're doing today, what are you being blocked by? As a leader, I'm going to look for the block first. That's the first thing I'm going to look for. Because that tells me somebody is essentially visual help is what they're saying. And I'm going to go in there and find out how I can plug it in. But if you, if that is an outshoot of that kickoff conversation, when you talk about stop, start, continue, then now you're starting to frame a thing where they know how to find you and where you're going to show up for them. These are the building blocks that trust, that, that builds trust. 
having a stated, committed, interpersonal communication schedule, one-on-ones, if that's the way it is, or small groups, I think one-on-ones is universally seen as maybe more effective. Making that commitment as part of that launch, that kickoff conversation. These are the building blocks that you use to to frame up that high-performing, high-performing organization. And I, I would argue that once you've done those things, Tell other groups you've done them. I said earlier, and so I'll repeat it and tie it into this. You tell people what you're going to do, you do it, and then you sh- you remind them that you said you were going to do it. So now we've decided as a group, these are the things that are important. These are the activities that we'll use to make sure that we do them. Now you tell these subordinate, the, these peer organizations and subordinate or superior organizations how you're going to approach these things. And then next month they see you do them. And then next month after that, they see you do them. And now the trust can grow, be- organically grow beyond you and yours to you and yours and those who interact with. Real good stuff, Rusty. If people who are listening want to continue the conversation, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Been, I've been on LinkedIn for quite some time. I'm out there some more often sometimes than others, but I'm always watching, I'm always listening. So Rusty Atkinson is, is my profile name. I also have shadowofleader.com is a personal project website that captures a lot of my point of view and a lot of the things that that I'm thinking and that I think are important. I publish out there from time to time. So you can stop in there and take a look. But LinkedIn's really the best place to find me. Rusty, appreciate you hanging out with us and sharing your insight. I think when I'm listening to this conversation, I think one of the big things that stands out to me is that if you want to build a high trust organization, you don't have to overthink it. Really what it boils down to is doing a few key things all the time. You, you, you certainly need to align whatever that action is to your mission and values, but you have to say what you are going to do and then do it. That's really the foundation that you build from. Certainly from there, I think one of the other things that stands out to me is that even if you're into the organization, there's always an opportunity to level set and start over and defining yeah. What's good, what isn't good, and what should we keep doing? Those conversations will allow you to level set and start from where you are and build forward from there. I think those two elements of the conversation are something that uh, I'll keep in my back pocket and I wanted to call out uh, before we wind down the show. For those who have been listening to the conversation, we appreciate you hanging out. Make sure you leave us a review. And then tune in next time where we will bring on another great leader to share with us the game-changing insights that they had that helped them build a high-performing team. Thanks for listening to this episode of the HR Impact Show. We hope you liked the conversation. Don't forget to continue supporting us by joining the HR Impact community. You can find the community at www.engagerocket.co slash HR Impact. Tune in next time where we'll have another guest who's going to share with us the game-changing insights that help them build high-performing teams.